Hello and welcome to The Roundtable, a Next Generation Politics podcast. Next Generation Politics is leading a movement of young people who are committed to building bridges across various divides. I'm Madeline, and at this week's Roundtable, Kanisha and I spoke with Dr. Adeyemi Stembridge, author of Culturally Responsive Education in the Classroom, an Equity Framework for Pedagogy, and a gifted educational consultant and thought partner specializing in equity-focused school improvement. We talked about Yemi's lifelong love affair with teaching and with equity, sparked by his own experiences in high school at Sidious School, which forged his vision of what education can and should be. As Yemi put it, there are few situations in which he feels more alive than investigating a worthy idea from multiple perspectives. We feel the same. He shared his feelings about teaching being the most profoundly human activity there is, doing some of the most important work there is. He wants to help as many teachers as possible be able to teach better and culturally responsive education, along with thinking about who we are being culturally responsive to, is a key way to do so. Yemi has honed in on six key CRE themes, cultural identity, relationships, vulnerability, assets, rigor, and engagement. And he works with teachers through week-long residencies focused on how to operationalize these themes in our classrooms. He's working on a new book coming out this fall focused on his key insight. Teaching that's effective for closing the equity gap is much more artful than it is algorithmic. You won't want to miss it. Thank you for listening. Hi, my name is Kanisha. I'm a high school junior from Queens, New York. And in addition to being on the podcast, I'm also a facilitator at YVOG. And we've talked about education a lot on this podcast, whether it's formal education or things like media literacy. And today I'm just really excited to delve into the specifics of pedagogy and curriculum, specifically through what you describe as culturally responsive education and the like themes and values surrounding it that you mentioned in your book, rigor, assets, vulnerability, engagement, cultural identity, and relationships, which I thought was all very insightful and very important to what actually builds a modern, a flexible, and a truly just like innovative philosophy for education because I think especially growing up in New York City there's a lot of discussion about things like urban pedagogy and different ways to incorporate a student's environment into learning because the city is so diverse there's a lot of discussions about how certain districts or even certain schools approach education versus other schools. I started being a facilitator last summer has made me on my own do a lot of like research into exploring what are different philosophies for education and why does that matter? So today I'm just really excited on talking about culturally responsive education and just other ways we can see curriculums develop, we can see attitudes towards teaching develop, and coming from a student's perspective, what that means to us. Hi, my name is Madeline, and I'm from Brooklyn, New York. And in addition to being a podcaster, I'm also a lead civic fellow at NGP, and we're in the midst of finishing up our CAPS right now, our projects. I'm also really interested in education, obviously, because I'm directly affected by what goes on in schools, but also because I want to be an educator myself. And just about a year ago now, I participated in a restorative justice training at my school that some of the school's leaders were given. And that kind of opened my eyes up to the injustices that are very evident in our school systems, whether it be through teacher-student dynamics or through miscommunication through curriculums, things like that. 
And so I'm really interested in seeing how you came to the work that you do now and how that could change the injustices in our school systems. Very much appreciate having the chance to uh, talk to both of you. I was born in Brooklyn and uh, Bed-Stuy do or die and I am from the Bronx, New York. I uh, graduated from high school actually from a school in Manhattan, an alternative school called City As School, and then went on to college at Norfolk State University uh, in Norfolk, Virginia. What brought me to the work that I do is an appreciation for my teachers at City As School. And I uh, had a couple of teachers in particular, four teachers, Pat Offshe, Vincent Davi, Andrew Galinsky, and Kellum Ingram. Kellum Ingram has passed away, so rest his soul. Um, and these teachers really went above and beyond the call of the profession to connect with me. And I was very much a vulnerable kid. No one was looking at me at that point as someone who would go on to write a book and consult with school districts across the country. But I had these teachers who basically sold me on a vision for what I could do with my own life. And so when I went to college, I was an English major because one of the teachers, Pat Offshe, was my English teacher. And I began to really fall in love with literature and well-constructed prose and clearly constructed arguments. And so I went on to become an English teacher myself, uh, really in the hopes of trying to repair the teachers who had invested so profoundly in me. And I have basically devoted my career to this love affair that I have with teaching. I, I think that teaching is just the most fantastic thing. When I'm in a classroom and I've got a room full of students locked into a worthy idea and we're investigating it from multiple perspectives and students are coming into ownership of it, there are few things and few situations in which I feel more alive than that. So the work that I get to do now is under the broad kind of conceptual banner of culturally responsive education. Frankly, I don't care what we call it. I just want to see us be able to teach better. And I think we have teachers who are brilliant in so many ways. And I think we have students who are deserving. And so I see my role as just trying to be a facilitator, trying to be helpful in moving us collectively toward that goal. Wow, I find that just so incredibly inspiring. Coming from someone who has always looked up to their English teachers immensely, like I think this started in sixth grade for me, like just my fascination with English teachers. And it really instilled in me that, wow, I really need to be an English teacher myself because I think of it as, you know, forming students to be out in the world and think deeply about the world that they live in, not just within school boundaries. I feel like the words that you said about wanting to repay what your teachers did to you, I could see myself saying those exact same words. I just wanted to inspire kids the way that those teachers inspired me. And so that's where my passion comes from as well. So it's really nice hearing that from you. So I wanted to hear an overview as much as you can about like what projects you're working on for our listeners and just like an overview of everything that you've done that's just like you repaying your teachers and showing that spirit through their legacy. Yeah, I think of teaching as the most profoundly human activity that there is, meaning that teaching is the central task of humanity to pass on our cumulative knowledge of how to survive on this floating rock in, in the cosmos. Had a book that came out in 2020 called Culturally Responsive Education in the Classroom, an Equity Framework for Pedagogy. And that book is really kind of the report on what I had learned in support of teachers. You know, in one way you can say starting in 1998, because in 1998 is when I began my doctoral program. 
at American University in Washington, D.C., and that's when I first heard the, the word equity in reference to education and opportunity. And so I tell people, you know, I fell in love with thinking about equity. And so it was probably around 2007, 2008, when I started thinking about culturally responsive education in the classroom. I'm a person who admires clear and careful thinkers. And so I had read a book by Gloria Ladson Billings called Dream Keepers. And that book was about teachers that she studied who were unusually successful with Black boys and the most vulnerable populations, vulnerable to underperformance and, and underachievement in schools. And she studied them to see what they were doing. And I was just fascinated by that as a research question and then just captivated by what I read in the book. And so um, from that point forward, I started thinking of culturally responsive education as an approach to teaching that is effective for closing equity gaps. And so a book that came out in 2020, CRE in the Classroom, is really just kind of reporting out on what I've come to understand, what I think I know. I try to stay in learner mode. I push back against the designation of expert because experts to me play defense. Experts are defending their title of expert and therefore they can't reveal their own questions and doubts about the veracity of their thinking. I prefer the term thought partner. I thought partner with teachers. I've been an independent consultant since 2015, but before then I worked at NYU, before then I worked at Teachers College, and then before then I worked my doctoral studies at American University. And so Kanisha really you know, named the six themes that I, I use in my work with teachers really well. Cultural identity, relationships, vulnerability, assets, rigor, and engagement. And essentially, these are the six big ideas that I try to work with teachers to operationalize. And so I try not to do a whole lot of lectures. Most of my work now comes in the form of a residency. I do residencies with teachers. I go and spend a week with a team of teachers and we... Um, look at our content. We think about what it is we mean by equity. We think what it is we mean by culturally responsive education. And then we ask ourselves, how can we operationalize this in our classroom? So we, we don't want to just talk about it. We don't want to just admire these beautiful ideas. We want to actually implement them in classrooms. And so that's the work that I do. Like that's like my, you know, my nine to five, if you will. And I'm working on a second book right now, yet untitled, but premise of the book is that teaching that's effective for closing equity gaps is much more artful than it is algorithmic. And so we need to create schools, classrooms, systems that facilitate artfulness in teaching rather than a strict adherence to algorithmic approaches to teaching. That's the book that I'm working on right now. I'm really excited about it. In many ways, a love letter to my mentor. My mentor's name was Charles Tesconi. He passed away on September of 2020. He was the first person who taught me about equity. I'm really kind of building on everything that I had the opportunity to learn from him and a few things that I picked up along the way. I think what you said about teaching being more artful than algorithmic really struck a chord with me because I'm sure Madeline has had the same experience. I've had my fair share of like good and bad teachers or like teachers that were more or less effective, you could say. And I've always found that for me, I think one of the most like jarring realizations that I had as a student is how much your teacher can affect the way you interact with not only a subject, but just your attitudes about education. And the power that a teacher has to do that. 
is always like wild to me. I remember I was like reading, I don't know if it was like a study or an article, something like that a few months ago. And it was saying that a lot of students' experiences and attitudes towards school are shaped in elementary education. And yeah, all the flaws with our elementary education system. And I just found that really interesting because a lot of what I found is teachers that I tend to respond really well with are teachers that have flexible curricula that try to kind of interact with their students in both academic and non-academic settings. Whereas sometimes I think there's something where teachers have kind of one way to do something. And when that shows success, they kind of stick with it. So I think that's what I was like reading part of your book. I was like, yes, I completely agree. Focusing on those six pillars and, you know, emphasizing like adaptability and forming those connections with students, I thought was really insightful. So I was wondering if you could go a bit more in depth on those six themes of culturally responsible education. And at least from like your experiences, how you've seen that actually play out in schools and like why you think it's so effective versus a traditional algorithmic philosophy. The really cool thing is I love teachers. I love teaching with teachers. There's a couple of things that happens. Most professional development in schools is terrible. And so when teachers get a quality professional development experience, they tend to relish it because most teachers, I'm talking about in my experience, the overwhelming majority care. They care a lot. They don't always know how to do it as well as they would want to. They generally care. It's hard to not feel successful when you're a teacher because it really kind of pulls at the very core of your being in a profound way. So the six themes I really like about the six themes, frankly, is that I did not set out to confirm that this model, these big ideas are the pillars for a culturally responsive approach to teaching. What I initially was doing was I would get like an hour for a PD after school. And so my task was to talk about culturally responsive education, but the idea is too big. There's some ideas that you do a disservice to by trying to give a brief presentation of. The brevity of the presentation suggests that the idea isn't nuanced and demanding and having range. What I started to do was I started to chunk out my PD. I would tell schools, this is like when I was at New York University, I would say, you got you can't get, just give me one. You got to give me like minimum three and maybe more like six PDs. And then, so I started chunking out the big idea of culturally responsive education and the six themes kind of emerged. They were five themes for a while. Rigor and engagement were one theme. And then, you know, we kind of realized I realized this with teachers, that those each warranted their own themes. Assets used to be called asset-focused factors. Assets was initially deficit-based ideologies, and it was the only negative stated of the six themes. And so a teacher said to me, you can't call this deficit-based ideologies because that's the only one of the themes that's presented in terms of the negative illustration. Then we switched it to asset. I'll just talk about two, and I'll talk about the connection of the two, because I think this also speaks to some of what Madeline was talking about. So cultural identity refers to who we are, kind of the composite of our cultural selves. And what I push my teachers to think about is I want them to think about culture in more sophisticated terms than symbols and heroes and holidays and food and fashion and festivities. I want us to get to the depth of this idea of culture. And what culture really is, culture is mostly information that lives in your brain 
that affects your behaviors, your attitudes, and your values. That's really what culture is. So when I talk about culture in this book that I'm working on now, I'm talking a lot about the instincts that we have for making inferences. Thing that separates human beings that makes our species so special is that we have this capacity to get inside of the mind of another human being. We have language to support us with this. Cognitive scientists talk about theory of mind. Essentially, when you have like a toddler and they're paying attention to the adults around them, what they're trying to do is they're trying to build a schema for predicting what people are likely to say and do in response to their actions and the stimuli in the environment around them. So culture is really the rules that we've learned about how to be a human. And the thing is, is that we're all multicultural human beings because there's more than one social space in which we know those rules. Cultural identity means, right, I'm asking my teachers to think about what kinds of cultural fluencies and funds of knowledge and ways of being are your students drawing from? Your students have a racial identity, but your students' identity doesn't just stop there. Your students have an ethnic identity. Your students have maybe a religious identity. Your students have a regional identity. Your students have identities kind of across the board. You know, I'm from the Bronx, right? And so where I come from, the New York Yankees are not a baseball team. It's more like a religion. And so I have a Yankees identity. I know how to human at Yankee Stadium. And I can signal to others that I have a competence. I know the rules. When I signal to someone that I know the rules, right, that makes me more trustworthy in that space. And so ultimately, a responsive learning environment, a culturally responsive learning environment, is a learning environment where students get to be able to build an understanding around a worthy idea by drawing down from these different parts of their identity backgrounds. I want to give my students the chance to ask these questions in their own minds. What is this like? What does this remind me of? This idea that I'm learning is kind of like if this idea that I'm familiar with and this idea that I'm familiar with got together and had a baby. And so when I give my students the opportunity to draw from their background, to draw from their cultural identity, my students are going to be able to think more deeply. They're going to be able to have greater range. They're going to be able to make connections that are uniquely their own. And here's me connecting to another theme, right? That's cultural identity. And I'm going to be able to then teach in a more rigorous way. Now, rigor doesn't mean harder. Rigor doesn't mean more. Rigor doesn't refer to a particular kind of text. Rigor is recognized by Karen Hess as extending strategic and reasoned thinking from one content area, one domain of thought into another content area, another domain of thought. So rigor is the extended strategic and reasoned thinking that connects ideas across and between disciplines. When I give my kids the chance to think in rigorous ways by inviting them to draw on their cultural identities, the fluencies that they have for how to human, I get classrooms that are electric. My kids take over. They teach me about the content that I'm teaching them. Teaching is more fun. I get to go home feeling you know, good about myself. And one of the big ideas that I'm working on in the book that I have right now is that good instruction should empower students. So it shouldn't center the teacher. It should center the student and an empowered learner is the learner who gets to sit, who gets to draw from their background. They have the opportunity to be successful, not in spite of their background, but because of their background. 
The truth is, historically, in America's schools, we have done this pretty well for a particular segment of the American student population. And basically, if you know how to engage and you're familiar with the fluencies of predominantly white and male and middle to upper middle to affluent spaces, then you usually, you, you are more likely to experience school in a responsive way. And so a question that we can ask is responsive to whom? What I get to do and what I get to figure out with teachers all the time is how we can do this in a way that doesn't disadvantage anyone. Because I really do not think of a classroom as a zero sum space. Least engaged kid is highly engaged in rigorous thinking. That's good for everybody. That means that all of my students, my students who I expect to be my top performers, they have an environment that allows for them to fully stretch into those extended thinking cognitive spaces. One of the things that I want my teachers to see when I'm coaching them is it can't be truly rigorous unless your students are able to draw from their cultural identities in order to show their competence. If you're not providing your students with the opportunity to pull from the full range of their background in order to show what they're coming to understand, then we can't say that it's a responsive environment, but I say we can't even say it's a rigorous environment. So as you're talking about this, I'm reflecting on my own educational experiences and I will say, last year I had a class, and happened to be my English class, was very low on busy work and very low on things that we actually, like assignments that we actually did, which was weird because all of my other classes were so high speed, even in a remote environment. And this class, I realized that even though we didn't do much busy work, it was the most rewarding and empowering because we had so much time to bring ourselves to the table. Last year, we read in that English class, The Prioress's Tale and The Merchant of Venice, for instance. But we spent so long on these because the entirety of our lessons was not the teacher talking to us. It was the students talking about how we brought our own cultural identities to these books and how that's reflectant in current events and how we see ourselves through that. And it was such an empowering experience, which was crazy because it was online and all my other classes were so dull and no one participated in any of my other classes. It was the one subject that I saw kids with their cameras on a little bit. They were talking, they unmuted themselves. And so it was an incredibly rewarding experience. And I think that's the one time that I've had an empowering class that discussed cultural identity in my entire educational career in the past 17 years. I just reflect on that so much and it, it makes me really happy to think about, but it also makes me think about how your six characteristics could have been applied to those other subject areas, even outside of subjects like English and in a remote environment. Because let's say this whole thing happens again and there's another lockdown, God forbid, oh my gosh. But I feel like we do have a lot to learn from being online. And so how is this applicable to an environment in which students may be particularly reluctant to share their experiences or to engage with their teachers? Well, you're going to have to read my next book because it's much more artful than it is algorithmic. I think last year was probably the hardest year to be a teacher in the history of the world. But let's talk about like a math class. So in a math class, there's a couple of things that I challenge my math teachers to give really careful consideration to. One is, what exactly are you teaching? Are you teaching the Pythagorean theorem as a thoughtless algorithm that you apply without any true conceptual understanding for what it's asking? 
what it is likely to reveal. I ask teachers to think really, really carefully. You know, if a kid gets this, don't tell me what they're going to be able to do. Tell me five years from now, what are they still going to know? What's that instinctual kind of gut reaction, that aha insight that a kid's going to be able to retrieve about whatever it is you're teaching? And then make sure that you're teaching that because that five-year takeaway, that insight, that aha is what you can build around. It's probably the most interesting part of the learning. It's the thing that you can get kids to start to make a connection to, even the kids who have convinced themselves that they're not, you know, math people. I got to get first and foremost, a real clear sense of what's at the epicenter of the learning target. Most learning targets are written for teachers are written in the form of action statements. Students will be able to, and they start with an ING word. Students will be able to, and then analyzing or, you know, evaluating. And that's cool. I'm not opposed to content standards, but I'm saying that the content standard is really the performance of the understanding and not the understanding itself. And so the first thing you got to do is you got to like really get to the heart of what it is you're teaching, because that's the part of the learning target with the most surface area for students to be able to make their own connection, for students to find their own access points in their doorways. The second thing, like for a math class in particular, is I try to coach my math teachers when we're talking in class teachers, seven minutes or less. If whatever you have to say needs more than seven minutes, you're probably trying to say too much right now. You want to position yourself, teachers, to be answering the questions that you're leading your students to. And what that means in a math class, in an English class, in any kind of a class, you've got to get them talking. And so some people say, well, they can't, you know, it's just math. Well, actually, no, there's, there's a whole lot of strategy in math. There's a whole lot of perception in math. I mean, you look at a math problem, you can have kids talk about what's the first impression of this problem? What do you see? What do you understand? What don't you understand? Where would you start if you were going to ask a question about this problem? What question could you ask? My math classrooms in particular are spaces where I really emphasize community, kids talking about their mathematical thinking. If we're asking kids just to solve, there's really no joy, nothing empowering about that. What's empowering about thinking about math is finding the opportunities to personalize my approach to this mathematical problem, to name and expose my understandings of what's being asked of me and also the questions that I have, the areas where I am unclear. Sometimes teachers say, you know, it's, it's easier to do this in like history or in English. And I'm like, ah, you know, I'm, I'm in a lot of classrooms. If it was easy, I think I would see it more often than I do. I've seen many, many math teachers, many, many science teachers who are able to pull that core knowing from the learning target and give kids a chance right at the very beginning of a unit to talk about what they are thinking. And once I get some momentum around that, then I can position myself to answer and respond to students' questions and thinking, which is a much more effective way of designing learning experiences for 21st century classrooms than sitting at the front of the room in a teacher-centered lecture. In my mind, there's a reason we see English curriculum and like social science curriculum be more, you could say like socially conscious or progressive than math or science curriculums because you have to memorize a lot of things and it's just problem solving. It's very strategic. Whereas in English and social studies, you can kind of explore more abstract subjects. And I really appreciate what you said about that there's space 
for those same techniques and those same conversations in STEM subjects as there is in humanities subjects. And I think where that also goes a bit further is, and I've seen this a lot this year especially, is with standardized testing. And now New York last year, like I think almost all regents exams except two or three were waived. So teachers who were teaching non-AP subjects were able to breathe a little bit because they didn't have the regents to teach to. But what I've seen this year a lot, especially as we're approaching May, we're approaching like AP testing time, finals season, is that teachers are constantly drilling this idea of it's never you need to know the material because of some more profound goal. It's you need to know this so you can do well on this test. And what I've seen even as a student a lot is I'll study really hard for a test because of the test and do well on that test. But not retain the material afterwards. I feel like I didn't really get the point of why I was learning something. I don't know. It's been a bit discouraging because I thought about sometimes like, why are we sitting in school? Like I've been in school from like 8 a.m. to 3.40 every single day. Why am I there for almost eight hours if I am learning something for this one test I have to take at the end of the year? So I just kind of want to get your thoughts on, you know, teaching to the test or standardized testing, because I think there's two very prominent sides, especially now there's one side that's like, it's not perfect, but it's the best tool we have. And then there's other people who believe that its harms outweigh the benefits that it does serve us. I think that the standardized testing paradigm that we have right now in American public education is a bigger enemy to equity than racism. When I am working with teachers and I'll bring some of these ideas, some of the ideas that we're talking about right now, I'm bringing them in teacher talk. And so, you know, the first thing that a teacher is always trying to do when they've got a professional development person in front of them is they're trying to figure out, is this person competent? Because like I said, most PD in schools is terrible. And so like once a teacher starts to realize, oh, this guy, he, he knows teaching. And then we start talking about ideas and we start designing learning experiences. A question that'll come up, particularly in the more affluent schools, is I like what you're saying here, Dr. Stembridge, but it occurs to me that if I do this, my test scores might drop. To which I say, if you think that good teaching will cause a drop in the test scores, and that means that the test scores are not in fact measuring the effects of quality teaching. They're measuring something else. The number one predictor for how a student will perform on high stakes standardized testing is zip code. Where they live is the most consistent, most reliable predictor of a student's performance on standardized testing. Now, I am not opposed to testing. I am opposed to the models that we have now. I believe that we must assess. We must be able to capture evidence of what students know. We must be able to capture evidence that can be used for comparative purposes so that we can measure within and across school districts about the quality of the teaching and learning that's happening in schools. But assessments, in order to be valid, must attempt to measure most directly, as directly as as you can, what it is we are most interested in knowing. What we want to know is, can we say that there is effective teaching and quality learning happening in schools? The truest measure of effective teaching and quality learning is a performative assessment, an assessment that measures a growth in understanding over time. Project-based learning experiences, portfolios, capstones. These are three tried and tested approaches 
to thinking about what a person can reasonably be said to understand, given the evidence, and a performative opportunity, an opportunity to show what they know. To explain something out of your head might be one facet of an understanding. You almost never have to do that. This is what they should be telling their school leaders. They should tell their school leaders, tell your principals and tell your district superintendents, I'll believe that you believe that standardized testing in its current form is a valid measure of effective teaching and quality learning when principals and superintendents agree to take an annual high-stakes standardized principal test or a high-stakes standardized superintendent test. You'll still know that the testing itself is a trash methodology. It's at best on its best day, it's a proximal indicator of what it seeks to know, but it more likely measures a kind of affluence and exposure to a particular cultural space. But you will know that if a principal or a superintendent agreed to do that, you'll at least know that they actually believe the nonsense that they're peddling in American public education right now. So I am not saying that we shouldn't assess. I'm saying that our assessments should be performative in nature. Project-based learning experiences, portfolios, capstones. When they canceled the test in 2020, I looked at that as a kind of admission of guilt because they said that they were canceling the test because they weren't good for kids. That's like what the testing companies in the state said. They pretended like it was some act of generous compassion. We're going to spare kids this. And I thought, well, aha, if it's not good for kids in a pandemic, it's never good for kids. If we would have been using an assessment model that's more performative, a project-based learning experience, a portfolio, something that you've been working with over time, you're invested in it, a capstone type project, a project where you're able to draw on multiple understandings and skills that you've developed in a real way, in an authentic way to solve a problem. If we had had performative assessments, we would have been able to use performative assessments to entice kids to continue to log on when we had to go remote. We would have been able to use our assessments, our testing, our performative assessments to encourage kids to stay engaged. And I would have been able to get kids to stay engaged by using the assessments. So I think that current paradigm, the way we've conceptualized testing in this country is maybe the biggest obstacle to equity because it's the thing that prevents teachers from bailing on these 20th century, 19th century teaching methods and really embracing the more kind of authentic and dynamic opportunities that we have for teaching today. One of the reasons why they say we should do it is because it's just easiest to do it like this. This is the easiest way to destroy someone. I think that there are other ways that we can complement what kids are learning in school. I just have to weigh in really quickly about what you were saying about testing literally destroy a person's spirit. In New York City, they have like this specialized high school admissions test that you have to take to get into like seven or eight high schools in the city. And I remember when I took that test, right? Unlike the SAT or the ACT or something like that, it's one day, no retakes whatsoever. One day for an eighth grader, 12 or 13 year old that you could say their success, their high school 
whole experience is going to be based off of one day the temperature in that room if they have a headache or not the breakfast that they ate that morning you can literally chalk it up to any factor and I know people that were in like prep schools for that test for two years like all of their middle school experience and didn't get into a specialized high school and it was like agonizing for them I know people that didn't study that did I took that test and I had a good experience but I remember when we got the results back I was thinking I don't think I'm smarter than this person that didn't or I don't think I'm more deserving in any way than this person that didn't. It's just in retrospect, putting that much pressure on the 13 year old is absolutely crazy to me. Like we don't even do that to high schoolers where they can at least retake the SAT. Yeah, I just wanted to say that could not be truer. Like the amount of pressure we put on standardized testing, that's one positive thing. I think the pandemic brought, especially to like the college admissions process is that so many schools are test optional now. And so many schools are planning to remain test optional for the coming years. And I think that's probably one of the best things that's come out of this pandemic. That last point that you make is really my main point, but I'm a social scientist. And so as a social scientist, my argument is it's bad science. The tests are bad science. They don't measure what we say is most important for us to know. And so the test that you're referring to, I was a single dad in New York City when my kid was in the eighth grade, and he had to also take those same tests for Catholic schools. The Catholic school system, they have a test too. Yeah, they have a test as well. And so, you know, really what you're most reliably measuring with those kinds of high stakes tests, and those are truly high stakes, right? Because I mean, your point is so well taken. I mean, that means if I live in a home where we have a newborn baby and the baby's up crying as human newborn babies are prone to do, I might not be able to summon my full cognitive powers to take this test that's not only going to have a huge say in how I spend my next four years, but where I spend my next four years has a huge say in where I spend my next four years after that. I don't mind asking kids to work hard. The biggest compliment that my students can give me is that they'll leave my class and they'll see, man, my brain is hurting. And I'll be like, you're welcome. I worked hard on that lesson. Thank you very much. I have no problem asking students to work hard. I have a lot of fun with my students, but we don't watch movies in my classrooms. We think. And my concern is that it's your last point, Kanisha, that the tests don't measure what we say is most important for us to know. And for me, as a social scientist, methodologically, that is a problem, particularly because it has an outsized disproportionate impact on our racial and ethnic minority students, our students for whom English is not their first language, and our students who come from low-income backgrounds. That's all for today with NextGen Politics. I'm editor Irina Chowdhury signing off. Please check out our website at www.nextgenpolitics.org slash podcasts for links related to what we've discussed and to find out more about our work. And please recommend us to your civic-minded friends or to your friends you'd like to become more civic-minded.